The year was 1275 BCE. For nearly a decade, two superpowers, Egypt and the Hittite Empire, had been fighting over control of modern-day Syria. Now, they prepared to fight an all-out battle for the valuable city of Kadesh, which meant the army of Pharaoh Ramses II was on the move. Young, energetic, and brimming with confidence, Ramses led a massive force of approximately 20,000 men. He commanded them personally, riding in a golden chariot at the front of his army. Behind him, his line of soldiers stretched for over a mile. They were ready for a fight. As he moved into Kadesh, his soldiers captured two men claiming to be deserters from the Hittite army. Ramses ordered the enemy agents brought before him. The groveling, terrified deserters threw themselves at the pharaoh's feet. They informed Ramses that the Hittite army was nowhere near Kadesh. Instead, the Hittites were hiding over a hundred miles away near the city of Aleppo. Ramses was ecstatic. It seemed the cowardly Hittites were too weak to oppose him, and now Kadesh was isolated and vulnerable. For Ramses, this turn of events confirmed what he already believed about himself. He was a living god whose very footsteps made the earth tremble. Ramses ordered the march to resume. Soon he would be within sight of his prize. He'd claim the city in a victory that would echo through the ages. But the pharaoh had no idea he was leading his men straight into a trap. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Today we're exploring the life of Ramses II, the third pharaoh of ancient Egypt's 19th dynasty. Known as Ramses the Great, he was one of the most powerful, longest reigning kings in ancient Egypt's history. This week, we're exploring Ramsey's education under his father, his relentless monument building, and his confrontation with the Hittite Empire. Next week, we'll look at the pivotal battle of Kadesh, his diplomatic successes, and the consequences of his exceptionally long reign. We'll have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Long before Ramses came to power, his reign was influenced by the previous dynasty. The pharaohs before him changed Egypt from an isolated religious empire to a top military power. After the death of the heretical pharaoh Akhenaten in 1336 BCE, his radical religion was steadily erased. His nine-year-old son Tutankhamun took the throne but died ten years later. After the short reign of Ai, Tutankhamun's advisor Horemheb took the throne. After the years of upheaval caused by Akhenaten's policies, Horemheb instituted a counter-revolution against them. By imposing brutal discipline, he sought to bring law and order back to the country. And he succeeded. However, it seems Horemheb wasn't born into a royal family. He was only able to secure connections to nobility through marriage and worked his way up through the military to be a royal advisor. But he had no heirs, and thus no dynasty. So he sought out a man like himself to succeed him. He chose Paramusu, another commoner who had risen to become a general. When Horemheb passed away in 1292 BCE, Paramusu, also known as Ramses I, became the first king of a new dynasty. Paramusu's age at the time is unknown, but he was elderly when he became pharaoh. He already had a son with a grandson on the way. This was a chief reason Horemheb chose him. His reign promised stability through a dynasty. Paramusu reigned less than two years before passing away. He was succeeded by his son, Seti I, in 1290 BCE. Seti concentrated on building monuments, a pursuit that defined many pharaohs. But at a magnificent new temple in Abydos, Seti built a sanctuary, honoring seven gods under one roof, including himself. Like Akhenaten, Seti wasn't content to be the gods' representative on Earth. He wanted to be included among them. And there was no better way to showcase his claim to ultimate power, except with force. Having established his domestic might, Seti turned his attention to reasserting Egyptian power abroad. Because Akhenaten and Tutankhamun were largely indifferent to foreign affairs, Egypt's sphere of influence had diminished. Now, its colonies were vulnerable to rebellion or foreign conquest. To bolster the empire, Seti launched a series of military campaigns. He led troops to the Sinai Peninsula and up the Phoenician coast to reclaim control in those areas. In Lebanon, he forced the local kings to cut down the land's famous cedar trees in his presence. It was a humiliating act of submission. Undoubtedly, this aggression and Seti's militaristic personality had a tremendous influence on his son, Prince Ramses II. Ramses was born around 1303 BCE. He was the only surviving son of Seti and Queen Tuya. We have scant few details of Ramses' life before he became pharaoh, but we know his education began early. 
Like all young princes, Ramses would have learned to read and write, for these were crucial skills of the elite. After becoming proficient in the Egyptian language, Ramses was then taught Babylonian cuneiform, the language of international diplomacy. Pharaohs were expected to lead troops into battle, so Ramses' physical education was equally important. He likely practiced running, swimming, rowing, wrestling, horse riding, and archery. Around age 10, Ramses was officially promoted to the rank of first king's son, marking him as heir to the throne. Seti even said of his son, raise him as a king so that I may see his beauty while I still live. A crown was placed on the 10-year-old's head while government officials kissed the ground before him. Seti provided his son with royal attendants, including various female companions, handpicked by the pharaoh himself. Seti clearly had high hopes for his son. He even allowed the young boy to begin work on his own tomb, which was perhaps the greatest honor for a king. Soon, more prestige followed. At age 14, Ramses was made commander-in-chief of the army and participated in his first battle. From then on, Ramses joined his father in war. He participated in the suppression of a revolt of the Amaru Kingdom, spanning parts of modern-day Syria and Lebanon. When Ramses was 18 or 19, he was given independent command and entrusted with crushing a small rebellion in Nubia. However, the Nubian rebels simply ran away when they caught sight of the Egyptian troops. Ramses had hardly any battle to command. Still, the young prince considered this a victory and celebrated by building a temple at Beit el-Wali. The interior was decorated with scenes of weeping Nubians offering tribute to him. Not all of Prince Ramses' duties involved the army. For a pharaoh, family was everything. A pharaoh had to marry and sire an heir to continue the bloodline. To that end, Ramses married a woman named Nefertari. Hailing from noble origins, Nefertari was barely a teenager when she and Ramses were betrothed. And their marriage, which secured hope for the dynasty's future, happened just in time. Ramses took the throne around 1279 BCE, when his father Seti died. We don't know how Ramses reacted to the death of his father, but we do know that he oversaw his father's transition to the afterlife with respect. After Seti's body was mummified, Ramses sailed with it to the capital at Thebes. Then he personally escorted a funeral convoy to the Valley of the Kings. This was the final resting place for many of Egypt's new kingdom pharaohs. But Ramses ensured that his father was interred in the longest, deepest, and most richly decorated tombs in the valley. With his father laid to rest, Ramses II officially became pharaoh. He was probably in his early 20s at the time. He was energetic, well-educated, and above all, ambitious. Not since Akhenaten was a pharaoh so eager to transform Egypt. But unlike Akhenaten, Ramses didn't have a new religion for the nation. He intended for every man, woman, and child in Egypt to worship him. Coming up, Ramses brings his own cult of personality to Egypt. 
Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. On behalf of Parcast, I'd like to thank you for your continued support. Your loyalty has allowed us to keep expanding even beyond podcasts. That's why I'm so thrilled to share some special news with you all, something we've never done before and made possible only because of you. On July 12th, we're releasing our first book titled Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. And you can pre-order it today at parcast.com slash cults. Those of you who've been with Parcast since the beginning know that it's a labor of love for us to bring you these powerful stories. As long as you keep listening, we keep creating. So with the benefit of years of research and insights, we've put together a comprehensive narrative that tries to make sense of mysterious groups such as Nexium, Heaven's Gate, the Manson family, and more, exposing how shared beliefs can have deadly results and taking you deeper into the dark side of human nature than ever before. You won't want to miss this book. Visit parcast.com slash cults to pre-order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them. That's parcast.com slash cults. Thank you again for listening. We can't wait for you to dive in. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some... The gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In 1279 BCE, Pharaoh Seti I died, passing the crown of Egypt to his son and heir, Ramses II. Still in his early 20s, Ramses was eager to eclipse the power of his predecessors. One of Ramses' first tasks was to place his lackeys in key government positions. The high priest of Amun was one such influential post. Amun's cult had suffered under Akhenaten, who had tried to erase the god from Egyptian culture. But since Akhenaten's death, the priests of Amun had made a major comeback. Once again, they owned vast swaths of farmland, mines, quarries, and slaves. The temple of Amun at Karnak alone likely employed over 80,000 people. By replacing their leadership, Ramses ensured the priesthood was administered by men more loyal to him than the gods. While Ramses adjusted Egypt's internal politics, he also had to deal with external threats. While he'd accompanied his father in battle, just as he took the throne, Ramses had to face down his first foreign invader alone. They were pirates called the Sherdan. The Shurden were one of the nine groups associated with the so-called Sea Peoples. This was a term for a seafaring confederation that went on to terrorize the eastern Mediterranean for decades. The Shurden raided the Nile Delta and Egypt's merchant ships. Hearing of the raids, Ramses responded by deploying warships along the coast to pounce on the Shurden when they came to raid. Many were captured, but rather than simply execute them all, Ramses incorporated the foreign warriors into his army. His forces only became stronger 
and foreign threats eventually subsided. With peace secured for the time being, Ramses then set out on a vigorous building program. First, to show proper respect, he completed the monuments his father had left unfinished upon his death. However, Ramses didn't always give the proper credit. At some of the monuments Seti started, Ramses only put his royal name on them. He was also concerned that his name would be etched over after he died. Ramses declared that when his name was engraved into a monument, it had to be carved so deeply that it couldn't be written over or removed. Like many other pharaohs, Ramses seemed driven by a desire to overshadow all other kings who had come before him. And as he'd shown with his father's tomb, a pharaoh's most important monument was their final resting place, and Ramses sought to have the greatest of them all. His tomb in the Valley of the Kings covers over 8,800 square feet. It was decorated with the solar disk of Ra and the goddesses Isis and Nephthys. It also featured scenes from several religious texts, as well as a book that gave instructions for a successful journey to the afterlife. There were several wide rooms in the tomb, including the Chariot Hall, the House of Gold, and the Hall of Truth. To help build such magnificent monuments, Ramses had to look far and wide for decent materials. Often, Ramses stole resources from existing structures rather than go through the trouble of quarrying fresh stone. The most significant source was Akhenaten's capital city called Akhetaten. The vast metropolis built by the heretic pharaoh was pulled down stone by stone and used in Ramses' tomb. There was even enough left over that he used it for other projects, too. Much to Ramses' delight, dismantling the old capital had another benefit. The destruction eliminated the last traces of Akhenaten's heretic religion. Ramses was building his magnificent tomb while erasing a predecessor's monuments. Ramses also spent vast resources on his own mortuary temple a kind of cult center built near the Valley of the Kings. Sitting on nearly 12 acres, it overflowed with gigantic statues and pictorial reliefs of him. It came to be called the Ramesseum. Besides being the loudest expression of the pharaoh's cult of personality, the temple also included huge granaries. In this era, grain was currency and Ramses used the giant complex to hoard the agricultural wealth of Egypt. It was an extravagant display of riches that took directly from the mouths of his people. These massive storage buildings had enough space to hold 250,000 sacks of grain, enough to feed the city of Thebes for an entire year. But to some, Ramses' monuments ensured his name survived in an unflattering way. Thousands of years later, archaeological artifacts found from Ramses' time inspired English poet Percy Shelley to write the poem Ozymandias. The poem's subject is the inevitable downfall of great tyrants to time. Its title was taken from the ancient Greek form of Ramses' royal name, Usur Maatra, this poem describes the lifeless ruins of a half-buried monument bearing the inscription, 
My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. While the pharaoh never uttered those words exactly, they certainly captured the essence of Ramses. Even among ancient Egypt's long obsession with grand building projects, few pharaohs could match Ramses' megalomania. It wasn't enough for Ramses to be admired as pharaoh or blessed by the gods. He wanted to be a god. At a site called Ramses, Beloved of Amun, Ramses' architects carved out a temple into a sacred cliff, some parts reaching nearly 180 feet deep. Within the temple, Ramses had himself portrayed as a living god. In the temple's central, most sacred room, there were statues of Egypt's four highest gods, Amun, Raharakti, Ptah, and Ramses. The temple's decorations showed Ramses executing Egypt's enemies and offering them as tribute to the gods, including himself. The depiction casts Ramses as both pharaoh and god. According to Egyptologist Toby Wilkinson, in his mind and in his monuments, the king was the equal of Egypt's most ancient and revered deities. Few autocrats in human history have conceived a more dramatic expression of their personality cult. But Ramses wasn't one to sit in a palace all day basking in adoration. Throughout his long reign, Ramses sailed up and down the Nile, inspecting numerous building sites. He ordered renovations, offered advice, and generally micromanaged his projects. As we've seen, Ramses was committed to surpassing all his predecessors, likely including his father. And soon, Ramses got his best chance yet to establish his legend. All it took was a bit of water and gold. Ancient Egyptians knew that there was gold in the eastern desert, but a lack of nearby water made mining this gold extremely difficult. Many workers and donkeys were dying on the long journey to the mines. No one, including Ramses' father Seti, had been able to find a local source of water. All previous attempts to dig a well had failed. The gold mining project seemed doomed. But according to legend, Ramses summoned his counselors and laid out his plan to sink a well once and for all. He gave them clear instructions about what to do, And lo and behold, water was found. Of course, it's more likely that the pharaoh funded a series of geological surveys of the area. One of them was lucky enough to strike water. Either way, Ramses made sure the new well was named after him. With the steady water supply, gold mining operations in the eastern desert ramped up. The new wealth added to Ramses' already considerable majesty and his growing legend as a living god. But digging wells and building tombs still wasn't grand enough. To house Ramses' massive ego, he had to build a whole city. So, like Akhenaten before him, Ramses decided to construct a new capital for Egypt. However, he intended his city to be more than just a rich urban center. He wanted his cult of personality to reach its fullest expression. And simple wealth wasn't enough. He wanted victory. Unlike the previous heretic pharaoh, Ramses' capital wouldn't be one giant temple. 
it would be an armory, because from this new capital, Ramses was determined to start the largest war Egypt had seen in generations. Coming up, Ramses builds his new capital in preparation for total war. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now, back to the story. After coming to the throne in 1279 BCE, young Ramses II set forth a series of grand building projects intended to display his majesty to the world. However, none were as ambitious as the construction of a brand new capital for Egypt. His father, Seti, had once built a summer palace in the northeastern area of the Nile Delta. Ramses chose to expand this site into a complete city. It was called Pyramess, or House of Ramses. This name reveals how Ramses likely saw himself as a god among the pantheon of pharaohs. While the former king Akhenaten had once named his capital after his beloved deity, the Aten, Ramses named his capital after himself. Round-the-clock construction on the new capital lasted almost 20 years before the middle-aged Ramses was finally satisfied. The royal quarter covered nearly four square miles. The city itself contained palaces, temples, government offices, and military barracks. Most stunning of all, it was surrounded on all sides by water. To the north and west was the Nile, while a man-made canal bordered the south and east. The royal palace was flanked by pleasure gardens and even a zoo which housed lions, giraffes, and elephants. The city also had at least 50 large self-portraits of Ramses, so that wherever a citizen looked, they saw their pharaoh. On the outside of the temples, Ramses had walls and gateways decorated with images of him defeating foreign enemies. However, this wasn't just symbolic. Ramses did challenge his enemies in real battles. As the new capital was being built, Egypt entered a particularly militant phase of its history. Pyramus included massive workshops to manufacture war chariots and bronze shields. One of the city's largest buildings was a sophisticated bronze-smelting factory employed mostly to build weapons. Alongside the construction of Pyramus, Ramses also built a series of 40-foot-high forts on Egypt's northwestern frontier. These were to safeguard the Nile Delta from sea pirates and the incursions of Libyans from the west. With the West secured, Ramses could turn his attention to the East and the looming threat of a foreign people called the Hittites. The Hittites ruled an empire in modern-day Turkey. 
Over preceding generations, they had steadily expanded their territory. Now they'd become a superpower nearly on par with Egypt. In years past, the Egyptians and Hittites had been on okay terms. But more recently, conflicting claims over the region around modern-day Syria caused tensions to boil over. A particular point of contention was the city of Kadesh in modern-day Syria. Seti had tried to lay claim to it, but failed, and it was currently under Hittite control. To Ramses, this was a grave insult, and he wanted to finish what his father had previously set out to do. So in the summer of 1275 BCE, his fourth year on the throne, Ramses marched his army north toward Kadesh. He established control along the Palestinian coast, then turned to the kingdom of Amaru in modern-day Syria and northern Lebanon. Previously, the king of Amaru had allied with the Hittites, but when he heard of Ramses' mighty army on the horizon, he switched allegiances. Strangely, Ramses halted his forces in Amaru. Perhaps he felt satisfied that he had laid the groundwork for a future attack on Kadesh. Ramses returned to Egypt, but left a vast contingent of soldiers garrisoned in Amaru. To onlookers, this resembled an invasion and occupation. The Hittite king, Muwatali, was furious. He swore to punish Amaru and Egypt. According to Egyptian records, Muwatali assembled an army of 2,500 chariots and 37,000 infantry. Alerted to the mobilization of the Hittites, Ramses marched out of Egypt again the following year. This time, he was determined to take Kadesh. To this end, he brought an army of nearly 20,000 men in four divisions. A reserve force consisting entirely of elite charioteers was sent by sea. They were instructed to land at the port of Sumer in modern-day Syria. They were to join up with Ramses on the same day he was scheduled to arrive at Kadesh. The pharaoh himself was at the head of the lead division. After a month of hard marching, he and his men reached a forest ten miles south of Kadesh. There, Ramses came upon two soldiers who claimed to be Hittite deserters. They swore their loyalty to the pharaoh and told him that the Hittite army was near Aleppo, over 100 miles to the north. Their claims that the Hittite army was too afraid to march out and face him inflated Ramses' confidence. He marched his division onward to Kadesh. There he set up camp and awaited the arrival of his other divisions, as well as reinforcements from Amaru. But while Ramses waited, two more Hittite soldiers were captured. They revealed that the Hittite army was not a hundred miles off, Instead, it was hiding just beyond the city. Ramses was shocked. Not only had he been manipulated, but one of his divisions was now completely isolated. The Hittites were preparing an ambush that would surely annihilate them before the rest of Ramses' army could come to their rescue. Ramses hastily summoned his generals to a war council. There, he did what supreme dictators often do, he blamed them for the predicament. And like many subordinates, the generals quickly shifted the blame onto their underlings, the army scouts, 
After all, they claimed, it was the scouts who'd failed to spot the entire Hittite army on the horizon. However, no amount of blame could change the dire situation. Ramses sent messengers to the other divisions, urging them to hurry. With these final preparations complete, Ramses steeled himself to face the full fury of the Hittite army. His life and the future of Egypt now hung in the balance. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll explore the outcome of the Battle of Kadesh, the conclusion of the Egyptian-Hittite conflict, and the violent aftermath of Ramses' long reign. Among the many sources we used, we found Ramses by Joyce Tildesley and The Rise and Fall of Ancient Egypt by Toby Wilkinson incredibly useful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Dictators was written by Devin Hughes, edited by Tony Goodman and Andrew Messer, with fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rosner. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. Exciting news. Parcast's first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them, is now available for pre-order at parcast.com cults. Thanks to your support, we've compiled years of research, insights, and a catalog of case studies to expose more about these cults and the people behind them than ever before. Details which haven't even been explored in our Cults podcast. Visit parcast.com slash cults to pre-order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them.